I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I'm sitting in my home office at 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night because I'm willing to put in the time, the work, and the commitment to be friends with Australians. (laughs) So I'm sitting here looking at the other side of a screen at Kyle Redman, who is coming here to me today from Sydney, Australia. And he's the research and design project manager at the New Democracy Foundation, an international nonprofit based in Australia. New Democracy is an independent, nonpartisan research and development organization that aims to discover, develop, demonstrate, and promote complementary alternatives, which will restore trust in public decision making. And pretty much everybody alive today knows that that's pretty critical. New Democracy is first and foremost a research organization that seeks to ensure citizens trust government decision-making. They work with governments to design and operate public engagement projects that enable everyday people to contribute to reaching shared and trusted recommendations around challenging areas of public politics. And most areas of public politics tend to be pretty challenging, I'd say. And they operate on seven key principles, which I'm really impressed by. The first is democratic lotteries or random selection. So basically the idea that These participants should be a microcosm of society rather than just a collection of the interested or, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, as we say. Another principle is time, because deliberation requires adequate time for people to learn, weigh evidence and develop informed recommendations and opinions, because all of these issues are so complex. Diversity of information, which means participants have access to a wide range of accurate, relevant and accessible evidence and expertise which obviously I talk to a lot of guests about misinformation, disinformation, and we all know we're kind of in our public, you know, our social media echo chamber. So this is absolutely crucial right now. And then they want to have a clear remit. The objective should be outlined as a clear task and linked to a defined public program. So it's about putting the question in plain language because we all can kind of get lost in the jargon of policy language of politics. And then there's upfront authority. Participants need to know their time is valued and that the recommendations that they reach will have influence because otherwise people get disenfranchised. They think, well, what's the point of giving an opinion if no one's going to incorporate it or listen to it? And then the final two are deliberation, not debate, which is so important because we live in such a polarizing and polarized society. So it's about finding common grounds and it entails careful and active listening, weighing and considering multiple perspectives. And having skilled facilitators to help do that. So a lot of this podcast is about doing that, having skilled conversations, maybe with people we disagree with. The final principle is a free response. Participants should have the freedom to respond to their remit as they wish. So nobody's being pressured. And I think all of those principles are super important and beautiful. We'll flush those out more as we talk, Kyle, obviously with some examples of how that looks in real life to bring it to life for listeners. But Kyle joined New Democracy in 2016 and has since designed and managed several of their major projects. We'll go into some of those, mainly focused in Australia itself. He's also worked with international partners to design democratic innovations in UPenn, Fortaleza, and Madrid. 
He's co-authored the United Nations Democracy Fund Handbook, enabling national initiatives to take democracy beyond elections. It's not the catchiest title, but it sounds like it's pretty useful. <laughs> and he also recently co-authored the book, The A, B, and C of Democracy, described as a learner's guide to democracy. So I'm really, really looking forward to speaking to Kyle today because he's got a slightly different profile than most of my guests. And I'm a bit of a policy nerd and a politics nerd. So I'm really, really looking forward to kind of dorking out on politics and talking about how democracy, people know it's in crisis. We need to rebuild trust, but we also need to address some of, well, a lot of the systems that govern our lives because they're outdated. And actually there's this great quote about his book, as the world accelerates into its digital future with new modes of working, connecting and living, our parliaments remain relics from a primordial, ideological, and adversarial age. Meanwhile, urgent challenges are stumbling to half-solutions in slow motion. Collaboration amongst us humans in the Anthropocene is no longer just nice to have. I loved that quote because it's so aligned with so many of the chats I'm having on this podcast, and I totally am on board. So I'm talking to Kyle today because he's done some pretty impressive things, and he knows what he's talking about. But he brings this beautifully innovative perspective on democracy. You know, he obviously believes in having democratic systems and building ones that work for us all. And that's obviously a really crucial piece of building a society that works for us, that works for the planet, and that enables us and empowers us as citizens to work towards solutions together and to be listened to. So welcome, Kyle. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me on, Betsy. I always give someone their scary and illustrious intro because it is uncomfortable, right? I mean, you know, yeah. and they're being like, I sound awesome. Huh. Yeah, you are. That's why you're here. I think you did a really good job of distilling those principles. I think sometimes it takes me 15 minutes to get through those. <laughs> well, you probably do them at much greater justice, but I'm just trying to give people the potted version that they can actually remember. But yeah, different purpose, I suppose. So today we're going to talk about the role of politics in supporting or blocking social and environmental innovation. But also we're just going to go in depth. I, I hope this is a nicely meandering conversation because I think we have a lot to talk about. So the first question I always ask is what is an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and that's shaped who you are and what you do in the world? It's straight into it, isn't it? It's this is straight a, into I, it. I've been thinking about this and I, I guess sometimes I think those moments, the life-changing moments are never, well, I mean, ideally they're not too uncomfortable. I think most of mine have snuck up on me in a way that's like slowly you look around and you're like, oh, everything is a bit different. But there is one moment I think, I guess, that shapes what I do now and, and how I've got here. And that is that when I was maybe in 2012, I was studying computer science at university and just not having a good time. I was struggling to put the time to study and wasn't really motivated or, or, or anything. And I guess that's a moment where you're fresh out of high school. You've moved, I'd, I'd moved cities. I grew up in the country in Australia and I'd moved into Sydney and I was like wide eyed and thought everything was going to be great. And suddenly it was hitting a bit of a stumbling block and I just wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. What I had done was taken up a double degree in computer science and arts. And I was intending just to drop the arts part and just do computer science. I was a bit of a math kid and like loved playing with computers. And then I took a philosophy class in one of my, like the second semester of that year, my first year, and, and it just struck a chord. I really enjoyed it, found it really easy to set time aside to do readings and ended up doing really well. 
And all of this was such a contrast to what I was doing with computers mm. and maths. And so someone that I really respected just kind of really encouraged me to just take that leap and just maybe lean into my enjoyment of those courses. I guess also I was feeling a little like computer science is a solid degree to just go and set your life up on. It's like that's a license to print money. You can just go and do exciting things and build new tools and everything. And getting an arts degree isn't something that people, I guess, associate this with. Yes, but this person who I really respected kind of just encouraged me to just follow it. And so I took up some politics and philosophy courses and then ended up just doing the opposite of what I intended, dropped my computer science degree and just did an, a Bachelor of Arts. And I suppose that has directly led to where I am now. Huh. As somebody with a degree in history and degree in politics, I, I hear you. People are like, what are you going to do with that degree in history? And I always would say, uh, a master's degree. <laughs> yeah, but it's a really rich experience to just follow your interests rather than that I should do this because I should grow up and have a mortgage or whatever. It's interesting. So it completely shaped where you've ended up then. I love also hearing you kind of move from the countryside to the city as somebody quite a rural place. I totally understand that experience where you're like, ooh, it's amazing. And then it kind of hits you in the face sometimes. And you're like, this is lonely. This is hard. This is not what I thought I was signing up for. So that brings us to sort of what was your path to working at New Democracy in particular, because we sort of, you know, your studies obviously kind of were probably going to lead you into something politics related, but not necessarily. You might have gone to law school or done something completely different. So how did you end up at New Democracy? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's like politics in general was something that was kind of on my mind. In high school, I guess I was kind of yeah, like peripherally interested in, in politics and what was going on. I had grew up in a family that didn't was I guess what I would kind of talk to as anti-political and we can go in, into what I think about that later on, later on, but they just didn't really have any thoughts about politics other than that they just didn't trust politicians. But they consumed media that was owned, like the um, News Corp, Rupert Murdoch kind of yeah. um, tranche of media in Australia. So there's just like a common newspaper that a lot of people just end up getting and then they just watch um, maybe like certain TV channels and stuff like that. And so I had never really experienced what it was like, like what a family culture that was a, around politics or even progressive politics was really like. And then so I had some friends in high school who were interested in that space and that kind of really cottoned me on to what was kind of out there. I think I liked, a characteristic of mine is that I like trying to figure things out or like discover things, but I also don't like being wrong. And so I think some of those high school dynamics were really around me just trying to figure out what I thought and then what I really kind of felt I guess distinguishing those so I was that kind of feeds into how it was easy for me to transition into politics at university I never really fit in with student politics or the kind of like party dynamics in Australia so I was really marrying that with the experience I had growing up figuring things out and then the philosophy angle as well and so I would see problems, never really quite be satisfied with what I think was the answer. I found a lot of left-leaning politics to be really backward-looking. I found right-leaning politics to be really unsatisfying and was just kind of looking for innovation, I guess. And then my pathway into new democracy from that is just really one of chance, I think. I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, you've got to put in the work and, and you've got to take the opportunity and right place, right time. But through the final what we call like a capstone course, the, the final course for my politics degree. My lecturer knew a woman, Lynn Carson, who was the research director at New Democracy. And so we 
studied a little bit of deliberative democracy and then went to new democracy to have a bit of a just a Q&A and kind of get out of the classroom, I guess. And at the time, my girlfriend was studying law and she was a high achiever and her and all her friends were filling out applications to go on Clark somewhere and then they were arranging tip staff positions at, with justices and stuff. And I'm sitting here like rapidly approaching the end of my arts degree, just being like, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> so, so I decided I would just like start applying for internships and I was like, okay, well, New Democracy seems like a good choice. It's really interesting and they're doing some cool stuff. And it's like, so I sent off an email. They came back. They were kind of interested. They were like, we've never had an intern before. And I was like, I've never interned before. So like maybe we could just figure something out. And so then I was there for about one day a week. So the following year I was doing my honours in politics. And so then I was at New Democracy one day a week and then doing honours coursework and then um, about to head into writing my thesis and then new democracy got really busy. And so they were kind of like, we need an extra pair of hands. Where are we going to look? It's hard to train someone up in this kind of field. You got to teach them all the background knowledge about what these things are and how it's different to how we do the politics normally. And I'm kind of sheepishly on the other side of the desk, just like putting my hand up, just like quietly being like, mm, maybe I could do some extra work. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm rapidly approaching the end of my, my thesis and it's getting to the crunch time. I just kind of ended up working there three days a week while doing thesis, which just ended up being a bit of another uncomfortable moment where it, like I was just a, a bit overworked. And I don't think I had developed good coping mechanisms for like what happens when your stress creeps up, but you're not aware of it. But I- Frog boiling situation. Yeah, right? exactly. Because people are like that. Yeah. yeah. And so then that ended up working out fine. Did well in my thesis. New Democracy liked me. And so then I came on full-time at the end of that year so that I would have started- that was part-time in 2016, which is around, around now, like five years ago. Well, I love that because it's also a nice reminder to people that like, if you just kind of take any opportunity that comes along and work hard at it, you can end up in a great place that is actually really aligned with where you want to go. So I guess now the question is, what keeps you there? What drives you in your work there now? And also, what are you working on? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess what keeps me there is an interesting question because I'm at this stage where I've been thinking about this a couple of times where it's like the early stage. I, I like to think about this as if I've peaked too early. This is a great job to have if you <laughs> have had some experience elsewhere and you want to come and work somewhere where it's like there's, I guess, you know how people go and work in places where they're like, I've done enough. I'm going to go invest my time in something that's a passion project or something. New Democracy yeah. feels like a passion project for me, but it's my first job. And so there are moments where I'm like, oh, maybe I can go away, get some experience elsewhere and just do things. Like I watched The West Wing when I was young and always dreamed that I would run campaigns or something like yeah. that. Or like yeah. never really found working for parties too appealing, but I could see myself just wonking out and like going into an economics degree and just like working in policy or something like that and just thinking about the way the world is for a while. But Somehow things we do at New Democracy just kind of keep reeling me back in. And I'm in like a unique position where the field of deliberative democracy is just growing with such momentum that there's opportunities all over the place to do really interesting things. Like intro, you mentioned that I'd done work in Belgium and Brazil and, and Spain. So those opportunities to kind of travel around the world and teach people how to do this stuff and then watch their work grow into a small local ecosystem to the of Democrats is just really rewarding. And I don't think I would get those opportunities anywhere else. So it's that kind of stuff um, 
Yeah, yeah the joy of a small organization. The, yeah, totally. Yeah, even the local projects are amazing because I get to travel to parts of Australia that I probably wouldn't normally go to. And then the way in which we conduct our projects means we recruit random people from an area. So there might be 40 people from Dubbo that I never would have ever met, but I get to spend a, a solid three months really getting to know who they are and working with them. And those are just really rewarding experiences that get to the point where we have to leave and I'm kind of, everyone's a little bit sad that we don't get to see one another much anymore. But I guess those experiences kind of keep me going. But also I just, like, I'm I'm feeling quite sure that this approach, Citizens Assembly, is still a bit of democracy and this kind of approach to doing politics is definitely the future of how we're going to make our public decisions. Mm. And so it's almost one of those things where keep in this space, eventually it will just become the the one that everyone else is coming to rather than the, the one where like you're looking wistfully in in the other direction. So you're riding the front of the wave. Well, you know, you're just sticking it out till the organization expands and you get your own local branch of it or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to ask, like, because a lot of people won't be familiar with I mean, deliberative democracy, it's kind of an obvious term, but just kind of bring that to life for people so they get a mental picture of what do you mean when you say deliberative democracy? What does that look like? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different ways of describing it. And I guess there's the academic lens where people would say that like most politics has elements of deliberation and it, and it does. So like parliamentary discourse and the way in which our political representatives work in committees and negotiate between one another is all deliberative. But as what I mean when I talk about it concretely is the way in which uh, we use things like citizens' assemblies, or I guess the best example is how can we maximally apply the principles that you mentioned in the intros, random selection, time, authority, diverse information, all of those different elements are like principles of deliberation. And so if you can cram all of those in and create what what I would call the ideal conditions for deliberation and, and for democracy in general, then that's what I would call deliberative democracy. And I think the way in which that occurs and what the space I work in is running what we would call a citizen's assembly or a citizen's jury. And just painting like a really clear picture of what that is, um, we would randomly recruit, say, between 20 and 50 people, depending on different conditions. All these things are bespoke for the like local area. So they're answering and responding to things that build trust in the wider community. We would randomly recruit these people in a way where it's the technical term is stratified random selection. So it's a, a way in which we can make sure that they are a microcosm of the wider community. So equal mix of men and women, ages are all representative based on like the census profile to a region and then geographic. And then depending on the situation, you might also stratify by educational attainment and then maybe whether or not people own or rent their own home to try and get a, like a class mix as well. Yeah. And so those people then meet in the room and then they meet every, say, three weeks for about five meetings. And then over that time, they're given a core problem. They learn about it. They hear from experts. They get to ask for experts that they trust. And then they have to work together to find a common ground. And then they write a report together that have recommendations that go to government. And at the beginning of all that, we pre-negotiate some authority for the process with the government because there's no real point in doing these things unless there's a commitment to act in some way. And then report gets squeezed out at the end and then government are responsible for committing or like responding to that commitment that they've made. And yeah. then 
it's quite complex. Basically, you're creating an ecosystem and a system to then feed the opinions and perspectives of real citizens into actual policymaking. Which yeah, is exactly. Like there's a a sense in which, and there are, we can nerd out on the reasons why and stuff, but politics has really started, not started, but it, it, it is really approaching a point where it is just completely leaving behind the way in which it connects to real people. Mm-hmm. It's becoming its own thing, like, like politics for the sake of politics. And these processes are ways in which you can make politics about everyday people and, and solving problems in their lives. But it's about finding the ideal conditions for that because there's lots of people who just don't agree with you or come from different backgrounds or have totally different angles on things. And I think most people have no idea what they think about any given policy problem. What they do is they would reflect the information that they've picked up from whatever news source that they read or whoever they follow on Facebook and that kind of thing. And those are never really firmly held beliefs, but they're just reflections of the kind of bubble that they're in. And we all do that. We all have that kind of like confirmation bias that makes us feel safe to just kind of like project a thing. But once you give people the right incentives to get in there and learn about something and then find what they can agree on, it ends up being totally different to what we would normally do in how we do politics. And so Mm. that's, I guess, really what these things are all about. Well, because I think most people are, and and people who are listening to this might be a little more politically involved or aware than the average because they're listening to this podcast, but it definitely does feel like people are so disengaged and they're not interested in being engaged because they're so distrustful of the system that what you're doing is giving them good information and an incentive to participate because you have actually created a pipeline where it goes somewhere. And that's incredible because, I mean... Being American, and a lot of this audience listening are American, so, you know, they'll have heard a lot of news recently, but gerrymandering and election, you know, election, what am I looking for? Engineering, where a lot of people are disenfranchised and they're, because they have different opinions than the ruling party or whatever. And what this does is it creates a place for people to actually take part in democracy that's protected from that, because it is through an independent body who has the relationship with the the decision-making bodies. I think it's quite beautiful, but it makes me want to ask. So how is politics broken and how is it not supporting society? So then we can talk about how politics can actually work for society, because I think most people would agree it's broken, but how do we fix it? So yeah, first, yeah, thing, how is it broken in your view? This, this is interesting because um, I suppose there are many, like in general, politics is a massive system and there are many different ways in which it works. The American system, I'm sorry to say to you and your audience, is much more broken than the Australian system. <laughs> Thanks for having that there, Kyle. It <laughs> has pros and cons. It means that, like, I think maybe there's a bit more of an appetite to do things in the US, but it just also means that the challenge is, is much larger. You touched on something before that I think is really important, and it's the, the way in which people are just tuned off or, like, they hear about politics or they think about it and they just they'd switch off. And I think that's often referred to as that kind of rational ignorance kind of thing where it's like you're it makes sense to not really care about politics when you feel like you don't have much influence it's too uncomfortable people just feel a sense of complete lack of agency or ability yeah exactly yeah it's like your inability to influence stuff and it's also just a waste of energy in a way some people get really worked up and find i don't there's something going on there where people just feel really passionate and get 
really motivated, but the vast majority of people just can't be bothered and just tune, tune out. And I think in general, that speaks to something that's going wrong with the way in which we do politics. In, in America, that's a little bit different because when you talk about rational ignorance and stuff, people often think or use that as a justification for people just not voting. I think that's a little bit like that's going too far. I think voting's not that difficult. And so it's the whole act of figuring out who to vote for is maybe sometimes challenging. But, but also the to explain there to anybody bad. who doesn't know, Australia has a system where you have to vote or you get fined, right? Yeah. So it is actually yeah. something you're required to do. And there are quite a few democracies that do require that. And I think it's not the worst idea in the world. So yeah, yeah. we are talking about very different systems, parliamentary it's, versus obviously the US one and required voting versus voluntary voting, which is often blocked by yeah. the system. And but yeah. I would say that I think the American system gets a bit distracted by trying to reform the voting system or mm -hmm. like the, the electoral system and not like there are easy fixes for a, a couple of the problems that you face. And one of them is what I think Americans rank choice voting or what we would just call proportional representation. And it's all like optional preferential voting. And rather than just doing first past the post, you can have preferences. And that creates a system that is much more amenable to having multi-party representation, which would solve a lot of the problems that you're having right now with um, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin and those kinds of dynamics. There'd probably be like a, a center party that kind of does a bit of wishy-washing between and it would let the Democrats just run off the, to the left a bit. But in Australia, we still have the same core problems, even though I would say we, we have some of the best voting or electoral systems in the entire world. About 75% of the Australian population vote in any given election, which accounts for the people that are citizens, so people who are eligible, and then there's like a handful of people, a couple of percentages who do kind of informal voting or just don't show up. Mm. And so that's like, that coverage is some of the best ever. And we get great, like the, there's no minimal fraud or anything, and it all works fine. It like it ticks over in a couple of days and everyone's happy. There's no, there's no dragging the feet and no pretending you won and didn't lose, but we still have those problems where people total collapse in trust. People think the parties aren't really doing much for them. What I think it's, it's easy to kind of put the blame on the politicians in a way where it's like they're, they've, they've stopped or they've started, I guess, behaving in a way that like it really is untrustworthy. I guess it's like they've earned this kind of dynamic and yeah. the, the way I would encourage people to think about it is that the political system is a system and the politicians and us actors in it that are responding to incentives. Mm. So, so that just means that politicians have a job to do. Most of them are in there in, in good faith, trying to do what they think is right or, or acting in a way that they think is trying to get the best results. There are definitely people in there who are corrupt. There are definitely people who are in there for the sake of it, just want to get in there and be, be powerful and that's it. But over time, it means that we've kind of figured out how to work these systems. And that incentive to win has kind of ground away at the political norms that we have. So in Australia, I think still, they were kind of there and, and they're still kind of getting worn away in a way. The current government has just really totally given up on transparency and is not releasing any information in terms of freedom of information requests and mm. um, keeping everything private, which is like totally at odds with good governance principles that are held right across the Western world. Mm. Um, and you've seen the total, absolute total collapse in political norms in the US in the sense that like the, it just is not functioning. 
Yeah. And, and that's really sad, but w- what drives that really is the incentive to, to win. It's the like holding office for the sake of holding office. And that's yeah. because that's the golden egg at the end of the system. It's like big the so, prom king for four years. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, and some people do it. I feel like Donald Trump got it and then just like didn't do anything with it, but it was the sake of getting it is yeah. the thing. And so that what that does is it means that our politicians have gotten, they've optimized for that rather than for fixing things. Mm. And so you see politicians getting way, way better at, at convincing people to vote for them, behaving in a way that um, is electorally positive. So like the squirming, dodging answers, saying one thing and then like hedging with another thing and all of those things where people are like, oh, they're being a politician. Yeah. Like the expected behavior that is like all about winning elections and not about fixing things. And so it's like, it shouldn't really come as a surprise then that our systems have really ended up like this really that's i guess my kind of diagnosis of, of what is that, going on the politics isn't really about supporting society it's about hanging on to a job as a politician yeah i think yeah. that's why i always and scratch my head when people end up disappointed in particular politicians because i'm just like at some point that politician no matter how much you love them is going to have to get reelected, and they're going to turn into a politician who acts in a way that gets them reelected. it's how the game works and you know, sort of don't hate the player, hate the game, <laughs> I think is actually a really apt saying here. Never yeah. thought I would use that saying for politics, but yeah. There's definitely a sense in which that's also the way our political representation kind of works, where people kind of, that what you've just described, where someone kind of like feels connected to a politician. And it's like, it, because of the way our party, particularly the American, but Australia is quite similar in the sense that it has two major parties, you know, in a way. And the way in which those parties like, kind of mush together a whole bunch of views on many different like logically disconnected issues means that you can have a strong view on one but then they might go in a different direction or another and that's like that's a recipe for you feeling kind of disconnected or that's just the way party politics works it's like a necessary coalition which can be uncomfortable (laughs) i think it's why people like us i have never fit into party politics so i totally got where you were coming from when you talked about how just really didn't care much for party politics because I love the idea of running campaigns and all that and you know West Wing we all love West Wing but yeah the having to toe the line when you deeply disagree with a candidate who you still have to get elected because it's all about the party I just could not bring myself to do that so it's great to have people like us who are sitting there and sort of the independent middle space helping people to be part of the system without having to be signed up to a tribe I think that's what I don't like about parties is it could be so very tribal. But I'm interested in sort of hearing your thoughts, because obviously we're talking about a whole range of systems here, Australia, the UK, parliamentary systems, Canada, and then the US with this two-party system that is, you know, it's about the rock star presidents and rather than the leader of a party who leads parliament or it becomes the premier or whatever. But I'm just wondering, what gives you hope? Because you've been involved in a lot of projects that actually... You, know, you said you believe that deliberative democracy is actually the way things are going to go. So do you think that is actually, do you fully believe in that statement? Is power getting more, well, democratic or distributed? Or what makes you say that? What can we give other people to be hopeful about here? Yeah, I guess straight up, yes, I totally believe <laughs> that this is going to be a kind of takeover the way in which we do politics. And that's because the politicians also hate the system at the moment. Like they've got to spend most of their time going and fundraising, go, like election campaigns are really expensive. So like if you're a 
a budding young politician and you're fresh into the party, you're going to be spending most of your time going to fundraisers, earning money for the party. Yeah. And like, no one dreams of that when they want to become a politician. They want to get in there and fix things and change things and be the next Barack Obama or something. So that's like, if politicians can kind of change the system that lets them become what they dream of, then I think they will grab that if they see that. And I think citizens' assemblies help them do that. It's a way in which it unlocks governing. There's like, you can get deep into the philosophy of it. Like I would recommend people go and read Max Weber and his writing on politics as a vocation. But there's definitely a role for politicians in our life. I think it's a job in which you play a valuable role in kind of shepherding and, and, and balancing directions for society. And I think that shouldn't just be left to economists and it shouldn't just be left to business or philosophers or something like that. There's a sensible role in the middle there for politicians. But I think that means they definitely see an appeal in doing things differently. And then I guess the other perspective that I have is that I'm just seeing deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies just spread like wildfire across the whole globe. A couple of years ago, the OECD published a report that they called, the shorthand for it was just like the catching the deliberative wave. And they documented hundreds of these projects that are taking place and most of the, over the last 20 odd years, but most of them in the re-decade, there've been about 60 of them in Australia and similar amount in Germany and they're all over the UK and there are organizations popping up everywhere that run these things. Some friends of ours in Spain, Deliberativa, we help some friends in Brazil, Deliver Brazil and New Democracy. There's plenty of organizations that are beginning to do this. And what they're doing is they're proving that these things work. They take complex problems that are otherwise intractable to our current political system that we talked about incentives before and the way in which politicians respond to them. The system really gears for addressing short-term problems because that's like the electoral payoff is in short term. No one wants to, like the reticence of people voting for carbon taxes is a perfect example of how <laughs> people will, people will respond to opinion polls and say 80% of the population wants action on climate change. And then when the solution is the one that economists all recommend, which is a carbon tax in which you progressively redistribute the wealth, everyone's like, no, I don't want that. I don't want to pay more money. And so yeah, what we have there is like this, the, the solution that I'm sure a lot of those people would actually agree with if they figured it out. Like if they had the right incentives to go and learn about it and then like discuss it with experts and then negotiate with their peers. I'm sure that they would probably land on something quite similar to that. It might not be exactly what the, the economists dream of, but it would be something quite close. And it would marry those two things up where it's like, we need action on climate change, but then also we need to have some trade-off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, like I see that a lot because obviously I work a lot on social and environmental issues, particularly environmental issues over the past decade or so. Yeah, people vote in their own interests and it's just human nature. And if you give them enough facts, they realize that their interest is joined to everyone else's. I think it's kind of what you're saying. And they will come up with a really workable solution for themselves if you get them involved in the process about like, yeah. you say carbon tax and my brain just goes numb, as <laughs> does most people's brains probably. But you know, we're talking about actually things like, for example, Norway. Norway has made so much money from its oil reserves, but they've invested it very sustainably. So like if you live in Norway, you get like a 100% tax break if you buy a Tesla or a hybrid or an electric car, but they tax diesel and, you know, classic fossil fuel vehicles like 100%. So that's a carbon tax, right? Essentially, because it incentivizes people to go with something that is low carbon and it works i mean everybody still has their suv in the garage but everybody drives a tesla in norway god yeah. bless norway everybody drives a tesla in norway 
We should all move to Norway. That's my subheading here. Yeah. But I'm interested in talking about some of the huge issues that you actually are talking about, the citizens assemblies are taking on, because I think it's really important to bring this to life for people listening who, you know, they might not have heard of citizens assemblies and there might be one near them that they could get involved in. It's just never occurred to them. And it's fun. It's like the new gardening club or something more sexy to whoever's listening. (laughs) It's really fun to get involved in these things. It's like town halls and innovation forums and everything rolled into one, right? Yeah, I think it's a little bit difficult to just go and get involved in one in the sense that you're randomly selected to participate. So I guess the issues that these are, we were kind of talking about this just before, the issues that these are good at solving and, and it's almost everything, but the way in which our political system is really bad at solving certain problems, these are really good because they give the right conditions for people to can kind of weigh up long-term trade-offs and find those kind of solutions to those things. So I've been working on projects at the moment, which are, uh, range from the country. So Canberra, capital of Australia, has what you could only describe as beautiful bush suburban uh, landscape where it's just like it's a planned city a lot of the houses out in the suburbs are all large family homes they all have good amenity and it's like it's like beautiful Australian bush suburbs I guess and then that rolls right up into the city where there are just like apartment blocks but there's not much in between which is like how can we find I guess what I'm living in in Sydney which is a big terrace house um, and so the government kind of ran a project which was basically getting consent from the community to kind of change the planning laws. That's like something that would almost always attract the grumpy voices where it's like, no, you are not changing my local community. And yeah, then other the people new banks, like, hardcore. And then it's the developers who are like, yes, absolutely. I would love to change your local community because there's a market here where people need these kinds of homes and I can build them. And so it's like, let's try and figure out where that middle ground is. And it, it was really fascinating. There were people who were like, I would benefit a lot if we changed the rules in this direction and people were like, I would, I would benefit if we just kept it the way it is. And they ended up finding middle ground. It resolved some problems that that department had been wrestling with internally for a long time. And they did it with quite clarity and, and depth that I guess governments are kind of figuring out that these things can do. There are many other ones operating around the world. France has done, I guess the one that most people kind of like to point to and talk about happened in Ireland where Ireland was the first country in the world to legislate for same-sex marriage, which is like, in a way, surprising just because mm. like Catholic religious Ireland. And they also used, so they used a citizens assembly process to kind of canvas this topic and just dis- discuss it before putting it to a referendum. So the assembly made a recommendation, which was to, to go ahead with the, rec- with the referendum and, and part, like legislate for um, same-sex marriage. But then they also ran a citizens assembly process on abortion law reform, which was embedded in the constitution. So like, if you went to a politician, you were like, look, we've got this problem. Abortion laws are embedded in the constitution. We must do a referendum to resolve this. And we're in a Catholic island. I think (laughs) the politicians would be like, you're dreaming. We are not No way. Yeah. Yeah. And so they ran a citizens assembly process on this question. I think in general, society is moving towards being comfortable mm-hmm. around that, like more comfortable or amenable around that issue. So it's not like the citizens assembly was a skeleton key that just unlocked this, but it was like a publicized process where these people made a recommendation to the parliament for the amendment to the, the constitution. 
that was the amendment that they went to referendum with and it passed. So one of those ones where we kind of like, we point to that as one of the global leading processes, but France has recently done one on climate change, which got a lot of publicity is mm-hmm. 150 citizens. Macron gave them the charge of essentially we've made these environmental commitments. How do we get there? They were, the results of that were like in a, a little bit controversial in the sense that I think most people haven't really grappled with what it means to get to net zero by 2050. Yeah. Like, like it really means that we don't put any more carbon in the air for the amount that we draw back down. Like that's a quite rapid change in like, there are just going to be no more cars. They're yeah. all going to be electric. And like, yeah. that's, that's a totally rapid change in the next like 30 years. People haven't really grasped that, but yeah, these topics can go for budgeting, simple budgeting ones where it's like local council, where do we spend our money? It's a simple one. And then other more complicated ones around, yeah, moral, moral questions or what do we do with our entire economy in the next? Yeah, I would urge people to just find out more about citizens' assemblies because I totally had a spacey moment and was like, of course, they're randomly selected. You can't just opt in. Yeah. <laughs> but what I take from what you're saying, what I really liked about the quote I grabbed from your book or about your book is about how we've all accelerated into this new digital collaborative age in which people are acutely aware that there are these big crunchy issues, but our political systems are still, you know, 200 years ago and they aren't fit for the the present we're in, much less the future without a lot of change, without a rapid change in policy that supports or blocks innovation. So what would be something you would want to leave people with? How can they get involved in excited about and yeah, effective in influencing politics where they live. What can they do to be part of this collaboration? Yeah, my recommendation would be there's an international network that we're a part of called Democracy R&D. I would jump on the Democracy R&D website and have a look for organizations in your local area Mm. and just reach out, ask if you can volunteer, ask if you can help out or in any way. The other thing you can do is get in touch with your local politics. I think If you start advocating for change that is not goal-oriented, but is process-oriented, that can really help politicians get to a solution. I think you've got to remember, and people listening and people who are involved in politics have to remember that we're on the complete margins in terms of the normal population. Most people uh, don't care. And so the people who are involved in particularly party politics are often people who are just really at the extremes in terms of interest and involvement. And so... If you can offer politicians a method for tapping into solving a problem rather than just telling them what to do, they will be much more responsive. If you're listening and you're in Australia, you can definitely keep your eyes out for a new project that we're working on. Um, essentially, we do a lot of advocacy towards politicians trying to convince them to do this. But like you've kind of pointed out, Betsy, there's a big kind of gap in just the wider consciousness in terms of what is a citizen's assembly and how do they work. Mm-hmm. We're starting a project in Australia called Change Politics and that's essentially solving that problem. How can we teach people? How can we raise awareness? I guess totally suitable for an international audience, but it serves a functional role for us in that we can take a big chunk of people who have signed a, a petition to a local politician and say, look at all these people who want to see this process. How about you You get on it? And I think there's another thing that I try and like to talk to people about. And this, I think, comes from maybe some more, I think everyone leaves a philosophy degree with just like this radical uncertainty of like, I just really don't know anything. And like, (laughs) how can you possibly ever really be sure that you know stuff? There's always someone who's done, like who's thought about something in a way that you haven't and that kind of thing. I think 
people are not humble enough in their own understanding of the world. I think people sometimes get caught up and think they definitely know what they're, they're thinking or they're talking about. And to address that, you really just need to kind of constantly remind yourself of your confirmation bias that will pop up and always kind of think like, what does the other side think? What other angles could I approach this from? And how can I behave in a way that is not so sure about the way the world is and it approaches it from what is sometimes called like a scouts mindset where it's like mm-hmm. you're out there trying to figure things out rather than what is sometimes called a soldier's mindset which is like you're out there to just like win the ideological fight there's a role for both yeah. in our conversations and stuff but if anyone's interested in that there's a, a book recently published by julia gallif who's called the scouts mindset and that's mm-hmm. just like an interesting dive into that i think the more we can change our thinking from being ideological soldiering to scouts problem solving, I think that will just benefit everyone. I love that. I think that's actually what I'd love to leave people with. I recently did a solo episode on discovering my own unconscious biases and about how important it is to realize we all have them, but also just that kind of active listening piece and also being willing to just explore. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's just about exploring having that scouts mindset that explorer mindset rather than like gotta win it's very linear very binary actually when there's losers black there's white but actually there's so much gray in the world and just sort of going about life being like "Ooh, what's over here Ooh, what's over here because i mean the work that i do we talk so much about diversity and corporates are seeking diversity and everybody's you know urging for equality and diversity but what you forget is that when you have a more diverse group you are going to come across people you disagree with or completely don't understand. It's not a low conflict context usually. So sort of being open to realizing that as you open up your mindset, as you start to listen more, there's going to be a lot less certainty. You'll be less certain, but once you get comfortable with that, and this is a discomfort practice, you're a lot less shakable. You know, you're more able to surf through uncertainty or global pandemics or the messy, complex issues that politics and policy focus on. So I think that's a really, really great point actually to end with, which is, yeah, just about having a scout's mindset. So is there anything else you want to leave people with? Final thought, where they can find you, all that? Um, I think we've covered most of it, really. It can find me, I don't know, I'm not a very like out there on the internet person um, on Twitter, but you'll just see me retweeting other people or occasionally liking interesting things. I don't even know what my handle is now. It's, it's Kyle Redmond something. <laughs> okay, so um, you can try to find Kyle Redmond on Twitter. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, um, Kyle. Otherwise, you can visit the New Democracy website, which is just www.newdemocracy.com.au. You can visit changepolitics.org.au. Sign up there. That site is currently a holding site and it'll be live in November, which is exciting. And that's about it, I guess. Yeah, I, I definitely will put all of that in the show notes, especially I think democracy R&D sounds like a great resource for people. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. There, there are so many people involved in this space all around the world and they're all in that early stage of starting to become big. So this is one of those things where it's like, so if you're interested, throw yourself into that space, learn, do a lot of reading and we'll see what happens, I guess. And I think yeah. it could be really useful for everyone. Well, what a hopeful message to leave people with. It's that things are changing. Politics are changing through the efforts of a lot of increasingly engaged and diverse citizen groups around the world, and that it is making sure that politics and policy support, hopefully, a transition to a 
fairer, more equitable, sustainable future for all of us where we don't have to be afraid as much, where we don't have to freak out that the world is going to end and where there's a role for everybody to play in politics. So I am really happy to have had this conversation because even though I am a total politics nerd, I have my moments of despondency, particularly as we watch the U.S. just kind of go crazy. But thank you, Kyle. Thank you for the optimism I feel left with at, you know, nearly midnight here on a Wednesday night in Barcelona. What a nice way to go to sleep. Yeah, so, thanks for staying up for me. Yeah, thank you for the other side of the world. And we'll definitely get you back on in, you know, six months to see what's going on with all of your work and change politics in particular. So thank you yeah, so gladly. much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Betsy. This has been really nice. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts, leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime... Stay uncomfortable.